You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. For the last, over the last year, we have been walking through the Gospel of John, and we are now in the last chapter. We'll be reading from verse 15 to verse 25, spending uh, our time today kind of closing, I hope, this little door of the chapter, but also maybe tying up any loose ends that I believe John actually means to do in what he would call as the, or we would call in chapter 21 as the epilogue of the Gospel of John. The, chapter 1 is the prologue that is an introduction to all that, who, all that Jesus is. He is in the beginning, He is the very Word of God taken on flesh, incarnate among us. And, and Jesus is not some plan B or some alternate or some creation of God, but instead Jesus is God. In the beginning was God in His incarnate Word, Jesus, and through Him all things were made. And this Word was God and this Word was with God. And nothing that was made was made apart from this Word that God was speaking in Jesus. The shortest way to say that is that before there was ever a chasm by sin between humans and God, God had already sent a bridge builder to bring us back. Before there was anything broken between us and God through sin, God had already spoken a word of reconciliation to us and Jesus Christ. An invitation to be reconciled to the Father and then in, invited even to be a part of this ministry of reconciliation that God has been doing, evidently according to the prologue, from the beginning. But now we find ourselves in the epilogue. That is, John has introduced us to Jesus and one of the w- main ways that John introduces us to Jesus is he introduces us to a bunch of people who don't quite get Jesus. And so from the very beginning, every interaction that John has told us about between Jesus and some other people has been an interaction where people come to Jesus with questions, concerns, or assumptions, and Jesus challenges every single one of them. And so that, that I believe that for us is an invitation. So if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, or maybe of deep questions about Jesus, or deep skepticisms or cynicisms about Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. In many ways, you're the reason we do this. And John says, come, come with your cynicism, come with your questions. It doesn't scare Jesus off. In fact, he says one of the best ways to see Jesus clearly is to be introduced to people who don't quite see him clearly. And so up to this point, we've seen Jesus as a model of all of these promises of the Old Testament fulfilled in Him. And people who come to Him not quite understanding or or assuming something about Jesus that wasn't true or right. So in this last chapter, we've seen Jesus as He's resurrected from the dead in chapter 20. He has introduced or revealed Himself literally to His disciples. And in the epilogue, He's introducing Himself to disciples in a way that kind of ties up some loose ends that we've been tracking along with for the entirety of the gospel one of the questions hanging was like what's going to happen with the disciples what should they expect what will it be like to follow jesus now that jesus has resurrected from the dead what will it be like to follow a resurrected christ and he begins to answer some questions and the first thing we saw two weeks ago was that to follow jesus means to admit and be faced with our own inability a fulfillment of john chapter 15 that apart from him We can do nothing. And the disciples were like, surely we can at least fish without Jesus. And the first part of this chapter is like, nope, not even that. And the thing that they were the professionals at, the thing that you would would expect them to be the most competent at, even that, they were 
unable to do apart from Jesus. What the last week we saw is this interaction between Jesus and Peter. We begin to ask the question, okay, so what happens to Peter? Peter, who had so vocally and, and vehemently denied Jesus, and he had thrown Jesus under, under the bus and, and betrayed him in a way to say, that I don't know him. What's going to happen to this very vocal apostle who's denied Jesus so vocally and publicly? And we see, beginning in verse 15, a restoration of Peter. We saw last week that Jesus, in, in many ways, and we'll read this, kind of walks Peter through a, a restoration process. And then we're left, okay, so what's going to happen with this Apostle Peter and the Apostle John? And we're going to be reading in verse 15 through verse 25, answering those questions as we wrap up our time in the Gospel of John. Beginning in verse 15. Now when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he had said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that you remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Firstly, if you've been with us over the last year, I hope that you will stop for just a moment and celebrate because if you've been spending the last year with us, just by virtue of being here on a regular basis, you did what, what I want to commend you on. You just finished reading a book of the Bible. That's a big deal. That is not, we cannot overstate that. We can't over-celebrate that. And so I want to encourage you, this is, this is a deep rhythm for us, and I want to even encourage you why that's a big deal for us. And, and for us as a church, this is, this is simply as our custom to walk through books of the Bible is to say this, like, 
if I can get you to just look at the God of this book, if I can get you to just slow down long enough to look and behold the God of this book, it will change everything. Everything will be different. Your life will never be the same. And so, so as, a, as a ritual for us, a, a rhythm for us, our liturgy, if you will, if you want to use those words, is to walk through the books of the Bible. Isaiah 66 2 says it this way, that the Lord has made all things. But he says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And so it's our custom to walk through books of the Bible with that aspiration, to simply behold the God of the Bible and tremble, not, not to master it or think that we know better than it, but instead to hold it, sit under it, and then let it shape us. As we say, when you open the Bible, it begins to open you. And so that's our custom. Now, as a result, I have nothing original to say. I am indebted every single, if you, even, in, even in this last bit, if I come up with something brilliant or wise, uh, I am indebted to a ton of resources, different commentaries, authors, speakers, pastors that I've even heard talk about the Gospel of John since I was a young man. And I'm indebted to them. I don't have any original ideas. In fact, our custom to walk through the Bible is, if we're trembling at this word, is to not simply find something new, but our hope is to dig up something ancient and timeless. And so when we come to the end of a book like this, I'm, I'm kind of sobered by by concluding. I, I mean, I don't know. I may never get a chance to preach the Gospel of John ever again. I don't know. That's maybe it. And I don't know, maybe it's because I, I see myself as a preacher. I see little metaphors in life. And as we come to the end of this chapter and the end of this book and this time together as a church, I'm left going, there's so much I left. This last week, we tried to celebrate summer uh, in spite of even the weather maybe not cooperating, so we smoked some ribs, and bought some fresh corn on the cob. That's not summer-ripened corn on the cob just yet, but we're trying, trying to celebrate summer. And I was reminded of something. When I was young, my father, I don't know how he did this, and maybe some of you have this gift, my father could hold uh, the corn on the cob and just like, I don't know, like a typewriter go across it. And when he was done with it, like there were, it was like a purely clean and symmetrical cob. Do you have those gifts, right? Like that's, that's, some, that's some, I don't know how you do that. And I've tried my whole life. And I'm getting better, but, but I noticed that next to me are my two daughters, you know, slathered with salt and butter, eating their corn on the cob, and, uh, and they just kind of like picked over, and like half of it was taken off. And I found myself looking like, you left so much on there. There is so, you, you, there is so much more for you. And it was a sobering reminder, and I would encourage you, I, I'm even regretting, like, there's so much more in here than I could possibly say on a Sunday. There's so much more. I have left so much corn on this cob. Maybe it's because I really just like salt and butter. I don't really like corn. I mean. And so some of these loose ends are tied up for us, and we're turning the page literally on a, on a chapter in the life of our church. But my hope is that we tremble at this word and we let John give us a last word here. The first thing he did beginning in verse 15 was that we saw last week, he, he walks Peter through a restoration through repentance. Now that's important that we delineate that because the Gospel of John does not use the word repentance. Even though the rest of the New Testament talks about repentance, the Gospel of John, he never uses the word repent. But instead, his emphasis is on the word believe or faith, belief. 
Now, it's important for the rest of the New Testament. That's not a contradiction, but instead, that is, those are necessary sides of the same coin, right? So repentance literally is to turn away. And so, for example, if I were to, even as I face you right now, if I were to turn away from you, I would have to turn towards the screen. But, on the other hand, if I were to turn toward the screen, necessarily I would have to turn away from you. And so, when John talks about coming to faith in Jesus with the words of belief, He is talking about the other side of the coin of repentance. Namely, that that to look to Jesus, to trust on Him, and we saw at the very end of chapter 20, to find life in His name is actually to turn away from other things. And the way that Jesus leads Peter through the act of restoration is through repentance. And I don't know if you caught it, but it was painful. We saw last week that there's it's an homage back to a time when He denied Jesus. In fact, we saw that in verse 20 when John was like, hey, the disciple who was leaning against Jesus, oh yeah, which one? Remember the time when we were trying to figure out who would deny and betray Jesus? Oh yeah, remember that? Yeah. And it's as if John and Jesus both are rubbing Peter's nose in his betrayal. Rubbing his nose in his public denial. He disowned Jesus. And three times, as many times as he denied Jesus, Jesus like rubs his nose in it. But, but notice, the reason he does that isn't so that he would make him feel bad about his own sin or simply mourn the negative consequences of his, deci- of his decisions, but instead he would begin to mourn the cost that Jesus has paid. You see, our hope is not morality. It's not that we would do better. Notice the way that Jesus leads him to repentance. He does not address his behavior at all. Did you catch that? He did not say the word disown or deny. No, no. He didn't say, and, and this is what this is, uh, this is important because that would be an anti-gospel thing, right? And this is what maybe for some of you even raised in the church, this is where you expect a pastor to kind of rub your nose in your, in your own disappointing actions this week and, and then tell you, you need to do better. And this is where Jesus could have taken Peter and said, you're not going to deny me again, are you? That's right. And for most of you, that's what you believe about God. And your encounter with God is that you come to Him with a, with a lot of shame and, and He rubs your nose in it and He says, you better never do that again. But what is Jesus after? Their right behavior? Their morality? No. He's after their heart. And so our hope isn't morality, that we would do right and be right. That's an important thing to delineate, especially because that's really, that's really a dominant culture kind of a thing. If that's your good news, do right and be right, that only works, and I'll be very, very explicit, that only works in a dominant culture, at least on this continent, that only works in a predominantly white Christian culture. Because if you've ever met anyone who's been the victim of discrimination, oppression, assault, or any sort of injustice or mistreatment, the worst thing you can tell someone who's just been abused or assaulted is, you better do right and be right. You see how that's not good news? but highly tempting to be good news for people who are on the higher end of a culture? Thank God Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do? He goes after his very heart. Why? Because his hope isn't that they would go do and be better. His hope is that they would recognize the sufficiency of his mercy. But look at the other thing we saw beginning last week. Jesus connects the love of him 
with building, caring community. Do you see the restoration process? In, in, in light of reconciling Peter, he sends him on through repentance and reconciliation, a restoration, and he recommissions him. And the way that plays out is what? Stewards, being stewards of Jesus' people. To love and care for them, to feed them. In the end, the people around us do not belong to us. But by God's grace, they belong to Jesus. And that's why the language of Jesus up to this point, that he's the good shepherd. He's the, I'm just an under-shepherd, right? The gatekeeper for the flock. It's Jesus. My job is like John, like, the, like I'm, not, I'm not the groom. I'm just maybe like the, remember like the, the 11th best friend of the groom on down? And I, my job is just to point to the groom. And even if I were the best man of this groom, my only job is to give a really good speech to make you love the bride and the groom even more. You get it? This, this is the nature of his restoration. He puts them on a recommissioning track that causes them to care for the people Jesus died to save. And this is for us important. This is for us why we have such deep convictions about membership in a local church. Because he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And if you were, have any sanity in you, you would go like, well, who's, who's Jesus' sheep? I don't know why I had a southern accent to that. You might know, who, 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 who's, who's Jesus, who's in Jesus' flock? Who's in Jesus' sheep? Boy, someone should come up with an institution of some sort, I don't know, uh, to maybe delineate who is Jesus' and who is not. It's called the local church. And the church is its members, its body parts, its family the bride of Christ for which Jesus has died. And I want to encourage you, there, there's no way to begin to actually articulate this or apply this apart from the community of God's people, that is the local church. The New Testament is a church-centric document. Look, I'm not saying you're not saved if you're not a member of a local church. But listen, I don't have to go home to be married, true? I don't have to go home. I don't have to hang out with my family to be married to my wife, do I? But you would admit there's kind of a problem if I did. Oh, I'm married. Well, why don't you, why, why don't, why don't you belong to that? Why don't you live with and belong with that family? Oh, I, I, you know, being married is between me and Jesus. Right? You get the idea? And so you know this is true. And Jesus is saying, look, this radical reconciliation that I've passed on to you will restore you, recommission you, and then put you in the care of the people I died to save. And apart from that, I'm not saying if you're not a part of a local church, you're not saved. I'm just saying you are, you, are a, you are a subject to no authority. And you're certainly worshiping a Jesus the Bible knows nothing about. There is no such thing as a one-on-one -on -one following of Jesus in the New Testament. It begins with the church, and it ends, guess what? With what? First chapters of Revelation, churches. Gathered together, every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne of Jesus. So don't, don't miss, the last words of John here are like, oh, by the way, this next thing that Jesus is going to embody after he ascends and the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them is going to show up in multiplying units of followers and apostles and disciples. That's what following him will look like. But one of the last questions that's left is, okay, so what will it look like to follow Jesus? What should we expect? What is it that they should understand will be a part of of their life now, and, and we see the answer is this, that what they should expect is suffering and the love of Jesus. Suffering and the love of 
Jesus. What should we expect? What should we expect to encounter if we're going to submit our lives to follow Jesus? We should expect suffering, great suffering, but also love. Great love from Jesus. Look at the operative words in this chapter. Verse 19, what does he say? Follow me. And then when Peter's like, hey, what about this? What does Jesus say again? Follow me. So what is following me? Well, he tells us. The last part of that first section. He says, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But one day, you're going to be stretched out. Now, every other Every other first, second, and third century uh, use of that terminology, that phrase, is a reference to crucifixion. And he's saying, look, Peter, one day, you following a crucified Savior will mean literally taking up your own cross. Now, other church historians tell us that Peter was crucified like Jesus, but Jesus, excuse me, but Peter was like, no, no, I, uh, other church historians tell us that Peter was like, I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus. And so they crucified Peter upside down. And Jesus tells him, look, you're going to follow me? You're going to submit your life to a crucified Savior? You're going to submit your life to one who has borne your cross? You also will bear your cross. The other gospel writers tell us this, right? Jesus says, look, if... I tell you, if you don't deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you have no part in me. You're not one of my followers, to use John's language here. And this is literally true. So he not only connects them to a, not only connects Peter and and this movement to a community, building a community of care, but he also shows us that following a crucified Savior will mean that there is a cross for us. And you might find yourself saying, well, that's surprising. It's fun. I'm glad you said that. First Peter, a letter that Peter writes later says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Just stop there for a moment. Whenever bad things happen to us, isn't that probably the best way to describe, like, this is strange. This is, we find our way of saying, like, in suffering, this is not normal. This is not the way this is supposed to be. And what is, what is Jesus saying? Like, no, this, this is exactly, if you're going to model and image a crucified Savior, they, you will model and image Christ through suffering. The, the glory for Christians is not that they avoid death and suffering. The glory of Christ is that he bears the marks of suffering and death and is resurrected victorious over it. And so Christian, you will not experience God's glory by avoiding suffering and death. You, we will experience the glory of God by bearing the full marks of it, being buried six feet under, and then being called, resurrected, victorious over it one day. So following a crucified Savior means there's going to be a cross for us. And Peter says, don't be surprised. Now that's helpful because I want you, you to reflect that back to me, right? When I'm in the midst of suffering. If I throw up, right? If I don't know about you, if I have nausea, I start praying for Jesus to come back. And it's a mild suffering in the grand scheme of the world, isn't it? Such a paltry suffering. But I, even then, you can remind me, hey, Jonathan, don't be surprised. I love that. You can even, you're like with a tone, don't be surprised as though something strange is happening. You live in a fallen, broken world. That shouldn't seem strange. But what does he say in verse 13? Instead, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Remember this? Paul tells the Philippians all that he had bragged in and boasted in. He says there was all gain, but it's now. I consider it rubbish. Compared to what? Compared to knowing Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. 
You rejoice and you're glad when His glory is revealed. How is His glory revealed? Did you hear what John said? Verse 19. How would He glorify God? By what kind of what? Death. Death. Just pause for a minute. We don't usually like to think about that, but here's the thing. One of these days, you and I, our lives will come to an end if Jesus doesn't come back to take us before it. And you and I know this, if you've buried someone you love, there is no hope if there is no hope in Jesus. If this is all there is, if this is just a sick, sad story told by a fool that means and signifies nothing, that comes to an end behind us in a cemetery, then it's the saddest of all stories, but there's a strange reality that we believe is good news. Did you catch that? There's actually glory we share in Christ's glory in death. Therefore, verse 19, Peter says to this group of people, therefore, then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He's not going to abandon you. So what should these guys expect? Persecution, hostility, ill treatment, harassment. Now, a couple notes on that. It's important to realize one of the most important things we need to know is that we will not avoid suffering, but we need to understand it. The best way to say it is we need to see suffering as God sees it. Right? Because Peter's friends were sitting there, and when, when Peter was crucified, they wouldn't have said, this is amazing. But what were they able to say? His death glorifies God. So we want to avoid suffering, but we want to understand it. And we will not all suffer in the same way. Maybe not like Peter, not like John. There's at least a couple things that we can do. One of the first things is that we want to be connected as best we can to the suffering of Christians around the world. Because when we talk about persecutions, we recognize there's different ways to be persecuted. And so here's what I would say in light of that, I don't think we are, it's not any good to like compare persecutions as though they're like there's some greater or lesser suffering, but instead we're called to love and weep with and mourn with those who suffer. Now, in our current culture, we, we're going to experience, I believe, a, a very post-Christian, secularized culture. Uh, we're going to experience a different kind, and maybe you've already experienced this, a different kind of persecution. We will suffer in a certain way. We'll be harassed, or at least be made fun of. Now, it used to be a thing where you could move to a place in the U.S., call yourself a Christian, and that earned you social capital. That will not be the case anymore. It will cost you. Now, don't miss it. We're not to avoid the suffering. We're to count the cost and consider it as a worthy sacrifice that glorifies Jesus. It says, don't be surprised. So think of it this way. If we have a desire to avoid suffering and to pursue comfort above all else, then what will happen is, and some of you know this, you'll round off all the sharp edges of the gospel and you'll make it dull and useless. Dull and useless. Here's an old quote for you. A.W. Tozer says it this way. In many churches, Christianity, and again, this is not from the 90s, right? In many churches, Christianity has been watered down until the solution is so weak that if it were poison, it would not hurt anyone. And if it were medicine, it would not cure anyone. He's saying there's a way, if you want, to blunt the sharp edges, to round it off. If, you, if your goal is to avoid suffering, and don't miss, that's a lot of what Christians have done over the last couple of decades. They've, we've tried to 
basically pass laws to make it easier to be Christian. And that's great. Praise God for that. But that isn't our hope. And if in the process we've blunted the sharp edges of the gospel such that now if you stand up and you say, I'm a Christian and nobody cares, I don't think they really know what you're talking about. And so don't miss. And if we start to like avoid the suffering that John says is surely going to come for his followers, don't worry about him, you follow me, right? If we try to avoid that, then we've, we've abandoned the gospel. After all, look, what did, he, what, did he, what did he go after to, to, to Peter? What he loves. You and I know this. Real love is born of suffering. Right? If someone you would consider a friend or family asks you a favor, and what do you say? No, that's too hard. What are you already communicating about your relationship? Did you get, like, this is who we are. This is how God has created us to be. And that kind of suffering that we're not meant to avoid is actually something that points to Jesus. Here's one for you this weekend. We celebrate Memorial Day. So as a church, here, here's what Christians ought to be doing. We might be tempted to, to simply like just kind of do a, a, a saint worship for soldiers or, or express our own patriotism or just really love barbecue. But for Christians, Memorial Day has a special meaning. The thought that someone would die for someone else is not a, it's not a, it's not a patriotic act. It's not, it's not even an American thing. It's the character of God. Like, look, you're going to do this. You're going to eat lunch today. And what are you going to do? You're going to celebrate the suffering and death of something for your nourishment, right? You're going to sit down and eat some food. This is why you thank God for food. You're going to go, thank God for this cow that is now dead so that I might live. Why is that a big deal for Christians? Because that points to something bigger. Right? I mean, for, maybe not, maybe it's, maybe, maybe some vine ripened tomatoes and lettuce and kale died for you. Either way, it's dead and you're not. <laughs> and that's why we Christians, Christians don't thank God for food just because they stop being hungry. They thank God for food because they recognize that death so that others will live is the story of God's character and nature in the world. Why do we get excited when we celebrate the memory of, of some firefighters running up a, bur a burning building that crashes down on top of them while they're going to save someone? It could be because they're really awesome, or is it possible they're displaying the very character and nature of God through sacrificial suffering? Friend, don't blunt the edges, and don't miss the invitation, even for Christians, to celebrate things like Memorial Day in a profoundly countercultural way. We have a special love for people who die to save us. And where does that come from? <laughs> he says, this is the kind of glory that God will receive from this death. So there's some myths that we would believe about suffering. First, suffering is easy. No, it's not. Never minimize the suffering of others. We have a special, because of what I just said, because we know the suffering of Christ, we have a special soft spot in our heart for those who are suffering. So don't minimize it. We comfort. There's another myth. Suffering is some sort of punishment. It's punitive. And this is where in suffering, as we comfort, we get to comfort in a powerful way. So whatever suffering you're, in, like you're enduring right now, this is, this is the good news for you. You're not, I know you're tempted to think that God is mad at you. That like there's some force that's after you and is punishing you. And here's what you get to say. You will never suffer as God's punishment. Why? Because Jesus did. Jesus bore all the suffering of the world on himself so that now the suffering you and I experience are momentary afflictions, not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us through Christ. 
So we, we, we comfort people in suffering, but we never accept the temptation that it's punitive. God isn't punishing you. You know now, since all the punishment, all the wrath of God was poured out on Christ, any suffering that you and I experience is the discipline of a loving father, correcting and guiding his children. One of the third myths is that God is somehow out of control in the suffering. That in suffering, something's gone wrong. And that's where I, I share with you what Peter says. No, that's, if we're going to follow Jesus, the symbol of our movement is a, it's a cross. It's a symbol of torture. But in that moment, we're tempted to think something's gone wrong and God's out of control and God's not good. But what does Jesus say as a comfort? He says, look, you're going to suffer. You, this is going to happen. And evidently, it was comforting for Peter to know that whatever bad thing would happen, whatever bad thing would happen, just consider this, even if you left this room with this, with this one truth that Peter got, whatever bad thing happens, not, not if, but when that bad thing happens to you today, this week, this month, this decade, it is not beyond God's good purpose for his glory and your good, your joy. What a powerful thing to stand up and be able to say in the midst of suffering. This is awful, and yet God will overcome it. Following Jesus will also involve fighting envy with our focus upon the calling of Jesus. Very briefly, did you catch what Peter's first response was to follow me? <laughs> I don't know if you ever sang that song, you know. No turning back. I, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Verse 20. After verse 19, Jesus is like, you're going to glorify me in death. Follow me. And what does the incorrigible Peter say? What does he do? He goes, huh? He turns around. <laughs> I, don't you love Peter? I, I don't know about you. I love Peter. And the first thing he does, it, Jesus is like, follow me. And he's like, looks behind him. He says, you're going to suffer and die. And the first thing he says is, is okay. Well, what about that guy? What's going to happen to him? Now, this isn't, I don't think this is an idle comment on John's part. He's tying up some loose ends. We'll all suffer differently. But the enemy will come and lead us to be tempted that we're somehow more afflicted than others. We'll take upon an identity of victimhood. And that's a problem. That's a problem. In Christ, our identity isn't in victimhood or defeat. Our identity in Christ is what? It's victory. It's victory. It's as if the disciples can say now, oh, what are you going to do? You're going to kill me? Is that the worst you can do? Have you seen what they did to my Lord and what he did three days later? Did you get the idea? And so we're going to fight envy. And I don't know if this looks like for you, but this is, just a, 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 this is why one of the Ten Commandments is you shouldn't covet and Peter's temptation first, when called to follow Jesus, is compare his following of Jesus to someone else. And so for those of you who would call yourself Christian in this room, this is a temptation, isn't it? Like, why is he not suffering? Why does she get all the good stuff? For me as a pastor, it's like, why, 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 why can't I be like that guy? Right? And he says, I, lo I love Jesus' words to you and to me with our envy. You'd want him to be, hey, it's going to be okay. What does he say? Hey, did you catch that? What's it to you? 
Right? I can hear the, I, this is my cry. Lord, why, why can't I have an easy life like the person? Because you always think the other person's life is easy. Why can't I have an easy life like them? And Jesus' response is, what's it to you? As I would have told some of my high school friends, if I would have said, why, Jesus? And Jesus would have been like, oh, I didn't tell you? That must have been because it's none of your business. <laughs> what is it to you? And how does, he, how does he divert us from that envy and temptation? Did you catch it? says, you, you follow me. You don't follow him. Don't aspire to walk in his footsteps. I got a whole other trajectory for him. You, you lockstep with me. I'll take you where you're meant to go. We see lastly on the tales of this that following Jesus is going to find our, be to find our identity in his love. Did you catch how John makes one last comment? He's done this multiple times in the gospel. He's never named himself, but he always refers to himself as what? The disciple that Jesus loves. Following Jesus is to ultimately find our identity in his love. Romans 8 puts it this way. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are what? Are we victims? Are we recipients of some sort of unjust punishment? No. We are more than conquerors. I love that. Like if someone were to walk in the room and be like, I'm a conqueror. We're like, I'm, I'm more. <laughs> I have conquered. And G- more, more. Nan, nana, boo, boo, I'm better than you. More than conquerors. How? Through our own merit, through our own goodness, through our own righteousness. No, through him. And what's so good about him? Why would he make us conquerors? And how would he do it? He would do it through his love. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of god that is in christ jesus our lord i'm sure i'm positive and john says you know how i'm positive i'm the one who jesus loved Hi, nice to meet you. I'm the Apostle John. Doesn't do that, does he? Never says his name. Never says his name. The entirety of the gospel. We have to kind of derive where it comes from. What does he do when he introduces himself? Hi, nice to meet you. I'm the follower Jesus loves. Can you imagine like John introducing yourself to the people around you that way? We talk about this regularly. Your identity is usually revealed and the first thing you tell someone about yourself Hi, nice to meet you. I am fill in the blank. And then you kind of add in your identity, don't you? A way to relate to a person, to connect with a person. This is my family. This is where I'm from. This is what I do. This is my job. What does John say? Forget all that. Nice to meet you. You know what's really interesting about me? You want to know something amazing about me? I'm the one Jesus loves. I'm the one Jesus loves. I'm the one, this is one of my favorite quotes uh, from Karl Barth, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. And he wrote millions of words, hundreds of thousands of pages. In his one trip to the United States, he came and, and they, uh, some of his peers, other scholars, 
kind of contending with him, said, said, Dr. Bart, if you would, could you just summarize all of the millions of words you've written? If you could summarize all of the, the lectures you've given, the talks you've delivered, all the books you've written, the essays and dissertations and articles, you've, if you could summarize it all in one, in one sentence, what would it be? And Dr. Bart said, after leaning back and thinking on it, he says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Did you catch that? Bart, tell us about your life's work. The most brilliant theologian of the 20th century. Tell us, tell us about your life's work. And what does he say? You need, you need to know about me? Jesus loves me. And I know it. We have an identity now fixed in Christ by his love. Fixed in Christ. Our identity now in his love. I'll end on this. You know that to be esteemed by someone great is true greatness. True greatness is to receive the esteem of someone great. You know this across the board, right? If, I, if, I was, if you and I were hanging out and I introduced you to someone and I said something like, you know, hey, this is so-and-so. She's really good at basketball. People would be, first response would be like, who are you? Like, who are you? Are you a good judge of that? But what if you walked in the room and, and LeBron James, or maybe for some of you, Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson, or I don't want to pick a fight, <laughs> walked into the room and they introduced you and Michael Jordan or, or the great thing, but the, whoever the greatest of all time is said, hi, this is my friend, you. He's really great at basketball. You get how what that person would say means a whole lot more than what I would say about your basketball skills? Now fill in the blank with whatever you like, Right? The thing that you think you're good at. If I introduce you, I was like, hey, he's you know, wicked good at accounting or sales, whatever, right? I mean, that's one thing, but what if your hero came into the room, someone who's genuinely good, someone you emulate, if they came in the room and said, no, this is this person and they're good, because you know this. True greatness is to be esteemed by greatness. Russ Morgan wrote a song in 1944. It was made famous by Dean Martin in 1960, and I want to close with this thought. Hear the lyrics. I'll try not to croon like Dean Martin. You wouldn't like it. You're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody cares. You may be a king. You may possess the world and its gold, but gold won't bring you happiness when you're growing old. The world still is the same. You never change it. As sure as the stars shine above. You're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till... No. I tried not to. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Profound, isn't it? You're nobody. Nobody until someone esteems you. When true greatness comes to you, it comes to the greatness of someone else esteeming you highly. John has written for us a book of glory. What kind of glory? The glory of God in the obedience of His Son who has suffered in our place. The glory of God in the fulfillment of all God's promises in Jesus. Just think back of them. Think back of all these promises fulfilled, right? What are weddings really about? What's the wine and, the, and, the, and what is the celebration of a wedding about? Jesus comes and his first, his first miracle is what? It's about me. It's about me. 
Well, what about the purification, like the waters of purification that you made into wine? How will one be purified? And Jesus is like, me. And they're like, well, thirsty in the desert. How will we live? And he's like, me. We're hungry. And he's like, I'm the bread of life. We're wandering like sheep without a shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. We're dying off the vine. I'm the vine. You get it? The glory of God fulfilled for us in every single promise coming true in Jesus. Every single one. The king has come and he will return. And look at this last chapter. Who has he chosen as the messengers, the ambassadors of this great kingdom? (laughs) Some dudes. Some guys that didn't get it. John has been introducing us to the real Jesus by introducing us to people that don't get Jesus. Just some folk. And so if you're in this room, and you might be saying something like, I don't know if I really get Jesus. I got a lot of questions I want answered. But I invite you to consider something. Are you one of the many people in this book that has deep doubts, cynicism about Jesus? What does John say? You're nobody until someone loves you. And Jesus has gone to all of these lengths to demonstrate his love for you. You'll say, I don't get Jesus. I don't know everything I want to know about Jesus. What does John say? Good. You're just the right person God wants to use to introduce him to the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... First, I thank you for John. Thank you for followers of Jesus uh, that have gone before us. Those who have contended for the faith passed on once for all the saints. I thank you for John. I thank you for the mercy you've demonstrated to us as we walk through his gospel. God, I feel the inadequacy even of my own words to explain what a friend of Jesus would do to introduce us to him, but I pray that you would do for us what you have done for John. Overwhelm us with a sense of your love that every promise, every need, every aspiration we have finds its yes in Jesus. And for those of us in this room, maybe we're overwhelmed with this sense that we're inadequate, we're not good enough, we don't have what it takes. Would you even now help us to recognize that isn't what you came to do. You came to take people who don't quite get it, who are missing out, who have deep flaws, and you came to demonstrate your great love for them. Such that even through suffering, we would have a deep abiding love that would hold us closely to the Father such that whatever we might endure, not a single one of those things could separate us from the love of God in Christ. And we are now somebody. Not our own merit, but because we are loved by Jesus. Thank you for this good news. Amen.